This, uh, this morning also doubles as a, uh, not just a, a stage that we can preach and worship together, it's also a catwalk for me. This is a new Christmas outfit. What do you guys think? Decided to branch out and go with a yellow polo this year, so excited about that. <laughs> we, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open to John 17, where Jesus is on his knees before the Father. This is the second part of a message called, What Would Jesus Pray? WWJP. Jesus is going before the Father. And he's going to pray some things to the Father. This is before he goes to the cross. And we're going to listen to this, the second half of this prayer this morning together. Before we do that, you know, when I was in, uh, when I was in fifth grade here at the, at the church, I had a, a Sunday school teacher, who some of you may remember. Her name was Jane Harple. Jane was a faithful fifth grade Sunday school teacher at our church for many, many years. Um, Year after year, she taught that fifth grade class. Um, And just three months ago, um, at a good, long life being lived, the Lord took her home to be with him at the age of 83. Jane was a prayer warrior unlike anybody I've ever known before. She had a room in her house, the top level, above kind of in a little attic, above every other floor, that was dedicated. That was her prayer room. Some of us have sports dens or living rooms. She had a a room dedicated for nothing but prayer. And every single morning, hour after hour, she would spend on her knees before the Father in prayer. Praying for everybody that she knew. And one of the groups of people that she would pray for was was every fifth grade Sunday school class who had come through that she had taught. She prayed for each one of those kids by name every morning. How amazing to know that Jane was praying for me every single day, probably until the day that she died. And I would love to know how different my life has been because one of God's saints lifted me up to the Father on a daily basis. And you know, Jane did that for me, but in this passage, Jesus is doing that for all of us. And not only here in John 17, but he's doing that for us right now at the right hand of the Father, praying for the ones that he loves. You know, often we talk about praying to Jesus, but do we consider, or praying to God in the name of Jesus, but do we often consider that Jesus prays for us and what that means? Um, At Cook Inlet Academy, where I coach, um, sometimes um, technical fouls can be handed out if you're, if you're unsportsmanlike. And actually, last weekend at the Classic, our opening tournament, I got my first ever technical foul as a head coach. If you can imagine, sometimes I have a problem running my mouth. Um, now, the ref did come up to me afterwards and explain to me that he actually did misunderstand, misheard what was coming from the bench and then he actually apologized, said it shouldn't have been a technical, so I'm still allowed to, to preach here. We're, we're good. Um, but when a player or a coach at our school gets a technical foul, we have to take it before the board and assess what has happened and if there will need to be further repercussions. Um, and so if a player on my team gets a technical foul or one of my coaches gets a technical foul, I can actually I go to the board on behalf of that player or on behalf of that coach, and I I intercede for them. I explain to the board what happened and what I think should occur. 
now that that is taken. I am going between that player and the board, between that player and and, and that's what intercession is. The word intercede, it means to go between. To go between one party and another. It's a sense of a mediator. And Jesus, one of his primary roles is to go between sinful man and a holy God. And Jesus' work of intercession did not just happen on the cross. That wasn't just what he did, and he did intercede for us on the cross. He died for us. He paid the price that we could never pay when he lived the life that he never lived, that we could never live. But his work of intercession did not stop there. It is ongoing work that is going on every single day. Jesus right now is on his knees, interceding, praying for, going to God on behalf of us. And praise God that he is, because I believe without this work of intercession, our growth would be impossible. It wasn't just Jesus' initial work on the cross that made our, our salvation possible. It is his ongoing work of intercession on our behalf. Only by the grace of God, through the work of Jesus, that we can grow as believers. And that we can be who God has called us to be. And so we look in this prayer as Jesus goes before the Father. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first five verses when Jesus prayed for himself. And, and, and in that, he said, Father, may I be glorified through this work on the cross, not so that it's about me, but that so my glorification on the cross would reflect you and how great and glorious and gracious you are. And now he's going to turn in a role of intercession and go before the Father. On our behalf, on the behalf of his disciples, on the behalf of all believers. Jesus is going to pray for his disciples in verses 6 through 19. And in the final seven verses, he prays for all believers on earth, then and now, in this context. I think for us to understand, we're not going to have time to go through every verse this morning. We're going to zoom in on some of the key things that Jesus prays for. But to us to understand what, what Jesus is trying to communicate, there's a context here that's really important. When he prays, he's going he's to ask for three things for us, but we have to understand what the context is. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, he's praying to God. Jesus is praying to God. He says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. The Father sent the Son to earth on a very specific mission. To come and die for our sins in our place to make relationship right between us and God. And just as was sent to the earth on a specific mission, he says, I am sending those who believe in me into the world on a very specific mission. And that is to tell everybody about the mission I came to do. To preach and to love people. And it's in that context that he's going to pray, everything that he prays. It's, as I'm sending them into the world, I ask for these things. And look at what he prays for. He says, so he prays for the sent ones, that they would be protected, that they would be sanctified, and that they would be unified. Jesus says, as I'm sending them into this, this is a perilous work. This is a daunting task. And that's why I need to pray on their behalf that as they go, they will be protected, sanctified, and unified. And what reassurance to know, what hope we have, that the one who was given 
all authority. Remember, he said that at the beginning of this prayer. The Father has granted me authority. All authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus has all power. He is the name that is lifted above every name. The one with all power and authority is going to request these things for us. Do you think that we'll be given them? If God is for us, who can be against us? If Jesus has prayed for our protection, who can harm us? If Jesus has prayed for our sanctification, who can taint us? If Jesus has prayed for our unification, what can tear us apart? What a confident expectation we can have as we go into the world that only our unbelief can inhibit these things from occurring in our lives. So Jesus prays these three things for us. Let's look at them together. First of all, he prays that we would be protected. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. We need to understand here what he's not saying. Jesus makes this very clear. He says, I am not asking that you take them out of the world. Now let's catch what that means. Jesus says, I'm not asking that once someone, once someone believes in me, that we take that person and we hide them. That we away, that we move them up to this monastery in, in, the, in the middle of, of the mountains and get them away from everybody else. Get them away from all the evil people, from all the things of this world to protect them. He's not praying that we would, once we're saved, that we'd group together, huddle together in a convent like a bunch of nuns, okay? Like Fräulein Maria. Raindrops on roses and schnitzels and what, schnitzel? schnitzel? Schnitzels? I don't know. It's with noodles. I love noodles, so schnitzel must be good. Um, he says, I, I don't want, you're not just huddling up together. I'm not praying that you, that you retreat into the woods and, and, you know, become this, grow this duck dynasty beard and, and do your own thing, live away from, from all the bad guys. I'm not praying that you hunker down in some underground bunker with your shotguns out, protecting your kids until Jesus comes back, holding down. Jesus said, I, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I don't want you to sect them off from other people. What's the context? Verse 18, he said, I'm praying that you send them directly into the line of battle. I want you to go into the world. Take the darkness into the light. Hide it under a bushel? No. Otherwise, why not just snatch us up the moment that we're saved? I mean, wouldn't that make more sense? If he wants to protect us, go to heaven. That's a great place to protect us. But he didn't do that, did he? He left us here, and he left us here for one reason. There's only one thing that we can do on this earth that we can't do in heaven. That's preach the gospel to unbelievers. We are his ambassadors, representing Christ on this earth. That's what Christian means. It means little Christ. We were to go into the world and preach to them what Jesus has done for them, to go into the world. And I think the key to understanding this, what Jesus is trying to say here is to understand what he's referring to when he says the world. Jesus is not talking about planet Earth. He's not saying, Father, please refrain from relocating all believers to Neptune once they're saved. That's not his request. The world, the context here, when he talks about talking about all the ways of thinking and acting and conducting and behaving that are opposed to God. It's the old system which we, before we were saved, were a part of. Those who had rebelled against God. And who's the prince of that world, of that system that opposes God? It is Satan. 
And so what he prays is, I'm not saying I want you to take them away from that, to take them out of that system. Because what does he say in verse, 16, verse 15? Not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus prays that his disciples would be protected from the evil one, the prince, the evil of the evil system that is opposed to God. Essentially, what Jesus is praying is, as I send them into the world, into the darkness, that those who are mine would not get caught up in the world's games. As they go to proclaim the truth, that they would not exchange the truth for a lie and start to live as the world lives, and behave as the world behaves. See, for some of us, for some of us, there's, there's two sides of this coin. And for, for some of us, the thing that we need to be reminded of, and these are generalizations, I think we bounce back and forth, some of us need to be reminded that we are being told not to be taken out of the world. I think for some of us, we feel very comfortable in a Christian bubble. And if I only hang out with Christians... If I only talk with Christians, that I only listen to Christian music, I only watch Christian movies, read Christian books, go to Christian events, eat Christian food, wear Christian clothes. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but you see how silly it is? We think that we can sect ourselves off, protect. Is that, when Jesus was on earth these last three years, where was Jesus? Did he hide out in one of the temples? Just hang out with the rabbis until it was time to die. Whew! Kept clear of those sinners. You know what Jesus' is, his nickname was? Friend of sinners. And that wasn't a compliment. Jesus spent his time in the bars and the brothels. He spent his time rolling up his sleeves and getting dirty with the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And tax collectors had a worse name than they even do now. He wasn't afraid to slop around in the mud because those were the people he came to save. We have not been called to retreat from this world. We've been called to go into it. But on the other side of that coin is some of us need to be reminded of the prayer that you would protect them from the See, some of us say, I got no problem going into the world. Here am I, Lord, send me. Right? I love the world. I'm all in on the world. Jesus is calling me to, to minister in the bars night after night. I'm there all the time, right? All things to all men. And we actually get caught up and we, we believe the lie that the world presents and we look to these things that the world is looking to, the lifestyle choices and the things that we take into our minds and to our hearts and to our bodies. We're looking for them for the same thing that the world is looking for them for. And we actually begin to look no different than the world. I remember when I was a youth intern, a lot of the youth group members would ask me, you know, Justin, why, like, why, is, why do people tell us that we're not supposed to date unbelievers? Like, what's that about? Like, is that some, just some, because that unbeliever over there is really cute, right? And I re he likes me, and I, want, I like him too. Why can't I date him? And there was a misunderstanding of, because for that, for the, a lot of times for, for, for us, there is no difference between us and that person. That we have everything in common with them. The exact same lifestyle. This, out same, this exact same mindset in life. And we become to look exactly like the world. And there is no difference. And that's why Jesus says in verse 6. says, They are not of the world. Even as I am not of it. 
See, there's a big difference between being in the world and being of the world. Jesus came into the world. He was not of the world. He was from the Father. He had the Father's outlook, the Father's mindset, the Father's desires. He desired only to please God. He came into the world, but he was not of the world. He calls us to go into the world, but not to become of the world. That we have been, we have been called that we are now from above. And, you know, when I was, um, there's a guy. Um, when I was uh, training with New Tribes, the whole focus was on how to go to areas of the world where people had never heard the gospel of Jesus in their own language. Places like Papua New Guinea, where this guy's from. Trust me, that look, he's just a couple years ahead of the trend. <laughs> we'll all be rocking that in 2015. Um, that we would go to people groups, that we would go to this area, but before we would ever preach a word of the gospel to them, we would live among them. Oftentimes for three or four years before we would ever say a word about Jesus. People say, well, what are you doing? Get, let's show the Jesus video and get out of there. Come on. But see, if you can't speak the language, how can you share Christ? And if you don't understand their culture, how can you effectively communicate to them? And so what had to happen was before we could speak the truth of them, we had to see from behind their eyes. To be able to see the world as they see it. To know why they paint their face like that. And why they poke those things into their necks. And why... They dance around this tree to try to get rain falling from the sky. Otherwise, if we just present Jesus to them, they'll say, okay, and they'll stick that Jesus on top of all their other gods and the other things they believe. It won't really affect change. We have to get down to the root level. And we are called to be missionaries, not just in Papua New Guinea, but in Soldatna and in Kenai. And we have to know the language and the culture of the people that we're ministering to if we're to effectively communicate with them. But if we're hiding out in that convent, in that monastery, we going to know the people that God has called us to. And you think, do, do you have relationships? Do you have friendships with people who are not believers? Are you getting to know them? Developing trust with them? And, and how, do we, how do we get to know their language and culture? One of the biggest pulpits in America today is the media. It's music. It's the movies. They're teaching them how to think and how to act. Now, he's sitting here saying, well, Justin told me that I can go watch any movie I want, listen to any music I want. That's not what I'm saying, Elijah. That's not what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, I saw that wheel turning. See, as we approach those things, we have to approach them with the mindset of a missionary. And we can approach those things to say, how does the world think, how does the world act, and look at truth versus lies, and to be able to know people, and to be able to know what they're thinking, to be able to minister to them effectively. Now, this is a slippery slope, is it not? Because as we go into the world, it's easy to start to become like the world. And that's why Jesus prayed, as I send them into the world, protect them from the evil one. Because his lies are tricky. And before you know it, you're caught up in the very game that you're trying to pull other people out of. And so the main question we have to ask ourselves is this. Am I engaging with this world to show people Jesus or am I making the world my Jesus? Am I looking to these things of the world to save me, or am I realizing all of these things are meaningless and that people need to know that so that they can be saved from them and meet the one who can sufficiently satisfy them?
Being in the world is very different than being of the world. Jesus prayed that we would be protected from the evil one as we're sent into the world. The second thing he prays for is that we're sanctified. He says, sanctify them by the truth, Father. Your word is truth. Jesus is now going to pray for how we are the evil one. This word sanctify, it's just a, it's a big word that can be broken down into a lot more of everyday language. Um, it has a couple different meanings, and I think they both apply here. Uh, growing up, our family had this red plate that said, you are special today. It was neat. It was set apart. You wouldn't just... You wouldn't just throw this plate out with any other plate, just like any given meal. Oh, hey, I got the red plate today. That was set apart for a very special occasion. It was when it was your birthday or graduation or you came back from a long trip or whatever it was. And it was, hey, we want to honor you today. So we've, this plate is set apart to honor somebody. Okay? And in the same way, sanctifying, it means to consecrate to separate from earth and common use, and to devote or dedicate to God and his service. Remember Hannah, she brought Samuel to the temple. She consecrated him to the Lord. She says, I'm setting apart my son to serve God here in this temple. That's what his purpose in life is. You and I have been set apart from the world for one specific reason, and that's to preach the gospel to declare the glory of God through the person of Jesus Christ. We've been set apart for that one special, significant purpose. But it also has another meaning. You know, when we, when mom, you know, it was time to give that person the red plate, you didn't just grab it off the top of the shelf and hand it to them all dusty and dirty, right? Hey, happy birthday. Have some bacteria with your cake. Right? What would they do? She would clean it. She would wash it so that it was presentable and acceptable to the one that we were trying to honor. And in the same way, another definition of sanctify is to make pure or holy. And as we are being sent into this world, we are not being sent as, as dirty plates. We are being washed and cleaned, being made holy, because God wants to present to his bride he wants to present to the bridegroom, Jesus, a pure and spotless bride. He wants to, to, what we're offering to him needs to be clean, to the one we're attempting to honor. And so we are being made holy as we go into this world to show them not just what we say, but who we are, being made like Jesus. Our mission statement as a church is to present everyone complete in Christ, this is not something we made up. This is straight from Scripture. This was Paul's heart for the church in Colossians 1. He said, our aim is to present everyone complete in Christ. That, mean, that means to be made conformed into his image, to trust Jesus fully as our source of everything, made like him, to be holy as he is holy. That's what Paul said in Romans 8, is the purpose of our lives, to be conformed into his image, to look like Jesus. God's desire for us is to be set apart and to look like Jesus. And what are the, how does he do this? How does he accomplish this? He, he says this in his prayer. He says, sanctify them how? Sanctify them by the truth. The truth is the means of our sanctification, of us being made holy. He says, your word is truth. God revealed himself to us through his word. 
through his spoken word to the prophets, to his spoken word to us at times, and through the written word that we know as the scriptures that the prophets wrote. And as we hear this word, and we accept this word, we believe this word, it is that process that sets us apart and makes us holy. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. If you want to be separated from the world, if you want to be cleaned, it does not come through our own efforts to climb up the ladder and make ourselves a better person. It is believing the truth of God, the word of God. And ultimately, that's why Paul said in chapter 1, what is the power of God into salvation? It is the gospel. The gospel is God's power to save. It's his good news. His power is what he says about who Christ is. And it's us believing what he says about, Christ, about who Christ is that saves us and grows us and makes us more like him. And ultimately, as always, it's all about Jesus. What did he say? In, what did John say in his first chapter? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who's the Word he's talking about? It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus himself in John 14 said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, Father, sanctify them by the truth. The Word is truth. Who is the truth? Who is the word? It's Jesus. Who sets us apart? Jesus. Who makes us holy? Jesus. And as we behold him, we will become like him. As we gaze upon the person of Jesus, we are conformed into the image of Jesus. It starts and it ends with Jesus, the Alpha and Omega, the Savior, the means, and the end. And it is the sanctifying truth it is Jesus himself, incarnate in the God's word, that protects us from the evil one, that sets us apart, and that makes us holy. It is the tr sanctifying truth that allows us to recognize falsehood. If you want to be able to identify counterfeit money, how do you go about that? It's not by studying counterfeit money. It's by studying the real dollar bill. And as you get so you know that dollar bill like the back of your hand. The second you see one that's not real, you're going to be able to immediately identify it because you know what's real. You know what's true. And as we get to know him, as we get to know truth, and we go into this world, we're going to be able to immediately identify things that are not him, things that are lies, things that the Satan, the evil one, is trying to throw at us, that he's trying to deceive us, to suck us in with. We say, that's not truth, and I don't want it. The sanctifying truth allows us to recognize falsehood. It also allows us to see reality different than the world. We'd be able to see through these lies, and we see the things that the world is trying to pin their hopes on. The, the money and the power and climbing up the ladder of, at work or your job or socially or whatever it is, that we see that that's all meaningless. The sanctifying truth, it allows us to desire different things than the world. We sing the song... You can have all the world. Just give me Jesus. He's the only one that can satisfy me. He's the only one that can meet my needs. He's the only one that can give me true hope and true peace and true joy. What real love looks like. And the rest of the things on earth, they grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Truth, the sanctifying truth allows us to live for one reason. 
to point people to the truth. Point them to Jesus. Everything else doesn't matter anymore. He's all we want, and he's all we want to show other people, to know him and make him known. Jesus prays that we be protected and that we be sanctified. Finally, he prays that we would be unified. Verse 20 says, my, name, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message. He turns here and he says, I'm not just specifically praying for my 11 disciples, those who are following me right now. He says, what did he tell them right before he left? Go into all the world and I want you to preach this message. I want you to make disciples. And so his disciples made some disciples who made some more disciples who made even more disciples. And eventually that discipleship rippled out to Kenai and Soldatna. And you and I are being prayed for by Jesus right here in verse 20. We are among those who have believed the message that he told the disciples that they perpetuated to us. Jesus has a prayer for the universal church, for this group of people who have been called out from slavery to sin. What is his heartbeat for them? This is his final thing that he prays for. He says, for all of them, let all of them be, that, that all of them may be one, Father. He prays for unity. As a body of believers, he prays for our unity. Why does he pray for our unity? Well, why is that his heart? Two reasons. First, in the very next line, he says, just as you are in me and I am in you. He says, Lord, I pray that they would be one because you and I are one. When I was little, bonding with somebody was a pretty easy process, right? There's this little kid rolling around in the dirt, eating dirt. I see the kid, the next door neighbor, he's rolling around in the dirt, eating dirt. Hey, you like dirt? I like dirt. We can be friends. Sweet, we got dirt in common, right? I'm picking my nose, that guy's picking his nose. You like picking your nose? We can be best friends, right? We have so much in common. And it didn't take a lot to develop this common ground, to develop this pretty intimate bond between boogers and dirt. And as we grow older, hopefully we form our relationships on more meaningful ground, right? And as we get to know people, we start to, we start to look for common interests, Right? We start to look for senses of humor and values and, and beliefs and, and priorities. And the reality is, <clears throat> the more we have in common with somebody, the deeper our intimacy goes with them. And if what I care about most is what they care about the most, and there can become this inseparable bond, this inseparable link. And you know that person. And sometimes I have friends in my life who I feel like know me better than I know myself. I can read my mind. And it's as though we become one. Because the things that I desire, the things they desire, we have that commonality. And there is no stronger bond that's ever been known than the Father and the Son. Because the Father and the Son have the exact same desires... The exact same joys, the exact same enemies, they are truly one. There is no better picture of unity than the Trinity. And, and Jesus says, if you're going to be adopted into my family, then you need to develop the same desires, the same joys, the same enemies that I have. Becoming like Jesus doesn't just unify us. 
Jesus and the Father, it unifies us with each other. So no matter, no matter what century you were born in, no matter what your skin is, no matter what kind of a personality you have, we are one because we have the same bloodline. And we have the same destination, the same hope from the same Father who gave us the same Son. We are united in that same love. And that's thicker than more and more substantial than anything on earth. And isn't it cool when you meet somebody you've never met before? They could be the exact opposite as you, but, but they're a believer as well. And it's, there's a strange familiarity with them, a strange intimacy with them. It's because that's your brother. That's your sister. What we have in common is the most important thing in the world, our Savior, the man Jesus. And it's cool that in Acts chapter 4, this prayer of Jesus' was answered. It says in Acts 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. However, you see this group of people that had one heart, one mind, one purpose, one vision. Not that they were all robots, not that they all looked and talked exactly the same. There's beautiful diversity in the body of Christ. But they all had one heartbeat, cared about one thing. They had all been set apart for one purpose, to declare the glory of God through Jesus. Is that something that Jesus can say about us today? They say, the Peninsula Grace, they have one heart, one mind. Look at the way that they interact with each other. Look at the way that they love each other. Secondly, he prays that they would be one, that we would be unified for this reason. He says, may they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus says, Father, I pray those who follow me will be united, that they will be one, so that the world will know that you love them. The world will know that you sent me for them as a token of your love. It's the greatest expression of love. On our basketball team, we, we, uh, we don't primarily, um, we don't assign a, a success to wins and losses. We have an acronym that we use. It's U-S-E, use. And it stands for it, unity, selflessness, and excellence. And we say at the beginning of the season, for this season to be successful, it doesn't matter how many trophies we win, how many banners we hang, are we unified, are we selfless, and, and are we excellent? And our first priority is unity, because the reality is, on or off the court, we can't be successful if we don't play as one. If we don't pass the ball to each other, we're going to have problems. Trust me, I've seen it. If, if we turn on each other, if we're harsh with each other, if we don't play as a team, we're not going to win a game, let alone be successful in the long run. And the surest way for the body of Christ to fail is disunity. We see that on, on a global level. We see that through denominations. I mean, slowed progress, global evangelism, better than this inability to all get on the same page. Even in Soldatna and Kenai, we have 50, 60 churches, I don't know, however many it is. And how many of them have different titles on the door? We can't get along, we can't figure out these differences. And we have all these little streams in the city. 
instead of coming together as one rushing river, imagine what we could do for the kingdom of God if we all got on the same page. I realize what that's asking. But that's what disunity causes. It also happens on a level within a specific church. Divisions and the ridiculous things that churches split over. See, when I church split. <laughs> um, carpet colors. Style of music. We must divide over this. And then we gossip about each other. We call it prayer request time. We have cliques and factions, and we backbite, and we devour each other. How many times have we seen people leave the church because of the hypocrisy of the church? Because of the way we treat each other? They go, thanks, but no thanks. I could get that outside the doors of the church. I don't need to come in here for that. Our best testimony to the world concerning Jesus is to be unified in love. One heart, one mind. Just about a year ago, there was a man who came to our church. He only knew a couple people here. His wife passed away, and he didn't have anybody to turn to. And our church, as one body, came around this man. And people who never had met him before are bringing him meals, night after night after night. And bringing him to the church, and setting up the memorial for him, running slideshows, hugging him, crying with him, loving this guy. And he said, man, I never, he had been around, the, been around the church for years. I had no idea that you guys could be unified. Like, if you do this for me as a stranger, man, how do you guys treat each other? And this man had been on the outside looking in, starts to come to home group, starts to talk to believers, starts to pray with people, starts to, the best way we can show the world that God loves them, that Jesus came for them, is by the way we love each other. By the way that we're one, as Jesus and the Father are one. And I'm, I'm so thankful that our unity, the ability to be one, doesn't hinge on our own effort. Because we see what happens when we try to do things by ourselves, right? I'm so glad that us being protected from the evil one isn't up to us putting on the boxing gloves and fending him off. I'm so glad that our sanctification, being made like Jesus, isn't me gritting my teeth and trying harder. And to look different from the world is just me attempting because time after time I fall back down into the dirt. Jesus holds the ropes of intercession for us. And it is only by his shed blood on the cross and his ongoing intercession going between us and the Father, praying on our behalf, it is only by the grace of God expressed in the work of Jesus Christ that we can be saved, that we can grow, and that we can minister to other people. It is Jesus that protects us. It's Jesus that sanctifies us. It's Jesus that unifies us. Father, you came into this world dirty, poor, broken, rebellious toward you. You didn't leave us that way. You sent your son to rescue us, to set us apart, 
to make us holy in your sight, not because of our works, but because of his perfect life lived on our behalf, his shed blood spilled on our behalf. Father, you accept us on the grounds of your son, nothing that we've done or could ever do. Father, thank you for your gift of your son. And now, Father, you've taken this this group of ragamuffins, this hodgepodge collection of people, completely flawed and scarred, and you said, I want you to go into the world and I want you to build me a church. But you're not going to go do it on yourself, by yourself. And Jesus, your son, is at your right hand right now, praying that as we go into this world, we'd be protected from the evil one who's going to try to do anything he can to break us apart, to keep us from preaching the gospel, to keep us from living the gospel. And Father, your son prays that we would be set apart from this world, that we would be made holy like he is holy, and that we would be one in heart and mind. Father, may we believe the words of Jesus. May we accept the words of Jesus. May we be set apart and made holy by believing your truth. Your word is truth. May we go into the world with one voice, one heart, one purpose. Preach your gospel in the midst of the darkness that you might be glorified. It's in the name of your precious son, Jesus, that we pray.